0: The continued relevance of superheroes in our entertainment world I think highlights a a direct thread from the 1930s flirtations with fascism all the way to today's national security state and it's worth reflecting on that sort of historical genealogy and thinking critically about whether we
1: want it to continue. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and welcome to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. There's only one path to peace. Your extinction. The superheroes film Avengers Age of Ultron recently passed the one billion US dollar mark in box office sales. It currently sits eighth in terms of all time sales, with the first Avengers film ranking third. The popularity of these films is underwritten by a revival of the American superhero. Batman, Superman, Spider-Man and Iron Man have all been recent hits on the big screen. A safe Superman means a safe metropolis. While the latest films might seem like modern stories, The themes and social commentary that underpin the superheroes goes way back to the 1930s and 40s. The Great Depression and the undercurrent of fascism of the Second World War all influenced the creation of a nationalistic superhero, who reflected the geopolitical and social attitudes of the time. I sat down with Jason Dittmer at the American Association of Geographers conference in Chicago recently to talk about the continued relevance of superheroes in both popular and political culture and the influence of fascism and geopolitical forces on the superhero narrative. In in a lot of ways, the whole notion of
0: superheroes is predicated on the discourse of American exceptionalism, that laws, bind citizens into society, but that those societies equally need someone who is unbound and capable of sort of transcending laws in order to maintain that legal order. And that very much is the same kind of narrative of America's role in the world that a lot of Americans tell themselves. You know, absolutely, the UN should be a binding force and no one should go to war without UN approval, but sometimes we can't wait around for that or sometimes the process is too corrupt, you know, and so we're just going to do it because we know it's the right thing to do and actually later everyone will thank us for it.
1: You say you answer to some sort of authority. They only want me dead because I'm an embarrassment, because I do what they can't. What kind of authority is that?
0: And then within that broad notion of American exceptionalism, you have specific superheroes that are identified as of the nation. So Captain America is, in a way, the archetype. He wasn't the first, but he's the first one to really stick. So, you know, Captain America is a hero who, in the narratives, understands himself as an icon of America and as having a sort of symbolic role. And you see that nationalist superhero subgenre, if you will, transcending America and circulating to other countries like Canada and Britain, where it sort of alights and transmogrifies into a more
1: local variety. How the superhero is reflective of the geopolitical and social views of the time is perhaps best highlighted by the very first superhero, Superman. Superman appeared in the first comics in the 1930s, during the time of the Great Depression. And at first, Superman was concerned with Depression-era issues. He fights corrupt landlords and bankers. But America, at that time, was also grappling with undercurrents of fascism. And the Second World War was looming. And the Superman story is soon transferred onto the national stage. It becomes a story about nationalism.
0: The superhero emerges in the period right before World War II, when questions of fascism as a legitimate form of government are sort of floating in the air in the United States, real questions about democracy in the face of the Great Depression. And so, you know, the superhero emerges at a particular moment when sort of righteous use of violence is being interrogated as a sort of mode of government.
1: Tonight, we are the law. Tonight,
0: I am the law. You know, maybe the most famous superhero is, of course, Superman. Uh, And it's sort of a little-known fact that Superman starts, you know, in in the first couple of issues of action comics that he's appearing in. He's uh, a sort of crusader for the little guy. He's almost like, um, you know, a Franklin Delano Roosevelt new dealer. He he literally fights against corrupt landlords and bankers and stuff like that so it's a he's almost like an anti-capitalist hero but he very quickly gets sort of reeled in into the sort of national frame right he becomes this sort of immigrant narrative of a, of a, a foreigner coming to earth as it is but in particular America and adopting that homeland and fighting for it. In the wake of World War II he's you know the sort of hero that we now think of as America's son, as it were, and, and intriguingly, in the 1960s, when the world has moved on in a lot of ways, and we're seeing the rise of big corporate America and men in suits going to work all the time, and you know, the sort of nuclear family or these kinds of things, and that's when you see the creation of the Justice League, right? So it's superheroes sort of banding together. It's no longer about the specifically individual hero, but it's about them working together, and you know, they have headquarters and these kind of institutional forms of superheroisms. You can in a way, model the narrative of superheroes over
1: changes in society. The other great comic book superheroes of the Great Depression and World War II era were Batman and Captain America. And these two superheroes have also been recent film successes. While these films may deal with new threats and villains that reflect current issues, there is a common thread to the superhero narrative that has remained relatively unchanged, says Jason Dittmer, fascism.
0: The first Batman film, Batman Begins, is both the origin story, which tells the sort of usual thing that we're used to seeing uh, about that, but it also introduces this notion of a sort of oriental threat, Ra's al Ghul, who is very much oriented towards the corruption of civilization and then, so because it's corrupt, he's going to destroy it, you know? And so you can easily map that onto a sort of loose understanding of fundamentalist Islamic terror. There's a moral critique and therefore there will be violence. Um, And it'll be a sort of purifying violence. And then that gets slightly left behind in the last two films as as the main villains, the Joker in the second film and then Bane in the third film. They're in a way forces of chaos in varying forms, right? They're kind of committed to just bringing things down in a a fundamental way, which puts the superhero into this role of being a force for order, which is interesting because you see it, you know, quite effectively used both not only to say, oh, isn't it good we have someone who's bringing order to things, but also how quickly that can slide into civil liberties uh, violations and that kind of thing, the way when Batman Uh, listens in on everybody's cell phones at the same time. In the film, of course, you're forced to say, well, that sounds good because he's saving the whole city. But, you know, it's kind of exposes how easy it is to slide into something that we're not quite comfortable with. But it nevertheless legitimates those kinds of interventions because we all know that the Joker is a horrible villain. and He's going to do whatever. It's the sort of the ticking time bomb scenario that always got trotted out by Dick Cheney and them, to you know, to say, well, you know, if there's a bomb about to go off, wouldn't you torture too? So the Batman films, I think, were were remarkably interesting in terms of thinking through the vaguely fascist tendencies of superheroes. You know, we 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 usually sort of take them at face value, and and say, oh, you know, they're they're great. You know, they're protecting us, um, but they're completely outside the law. Uh, they you know, have not been elected by anyone, they're not beholden to anyone, and it's worth sort of highlighting that kind of, you know, the dangerous slide, if you will, of thinking that way. The, the most recent Captain America film, I both love it and regret it, you know, it was a great film to watch, but incredibly timely in terms of coming out just at the same time that the Edward Snowden revelations have sort of renewed attention on America's intelligence activities and in particular at the time there was a Senate investigation going on uh, in which the CIA was found to have spied on the Senate committee that was meant to be governing them. So you know it's a remarkable film because the film sets at at its centerpiece, and this will be spoilers for people uh, who are (laughs) listening at home, but S.H.I.E.L.D., which is the intelligence agency in the Marvel films, is exposed as being always already infiltrated by Hydra, which is its sort of opposite evil number. And so Captain America decides that it's better just to do away with the whole thing, that, that S.H.I.E.L.D. has become a Trojan horse for totalitarianism, fascism, anti-democratic government. And so they do, in fact, in the end, basically do away with the whole institution. But. Rather than have some sort of democratic force fill that vacuum, instead it's understood that it's the superheroes, like Captain America, who will keep everyone safe. You know, so it's merely the replacement of one form of totalitarianism that's devoid of any kind of democratic government, with another one that is equally undemocratic and disconnected from the people. So, uh, is a great film, it was sort of ambitious, thoughtful, timely, you know, all the kinds of things that you might hope for from a good superhero film you know, but it still sort of has embedded at its heart that sort of quasi-fascism that, uh, you know, people love.
1: The 1980s saw the rise of the comic anti-hero. It was partly a response to the rise in violent crime during this period. And comic characters like the Punisher, Wolverine, and Spawn became hugely popular. Well, it's interesting. In the case
0: of Captain America, he is the sort of Boy Scout, the same way that Superman is in a way, right? They're both sort of epitomes of morality in their respective comic book universes. But at various points, you see the contestation of that Boy Scoutness. So for instance, in the late 80s, when really the anti-hero came into full blossom in American culture, you know, you have Rambo in the movie theaters, you have the Punisher who is basically Rambo in the Marvel Comics universe. He's a vigilante who just shoots criminals. He doesn't capture them or do anything else. You have the rise of Wolverine, right? A sort of hyper-violent superhero. So you start to see these superheroes who are okay with killing, for instance, in the 1980s. And they were very popular. And Captain America was sort of not as cool as you can imagine. So in the Captain America comic, they actually replace Steve Rogers, who's the original Captain America, with uh, this guy, John Walker, who was a guy from Georgia who had sort of Southern values. He was very violent. He wasn't a cold-blooded killer, but he wasn't above it either. And he wore a black uniform that looked like Captain America's, but it was black, you know. So they were really kind of trying to incorporate that anti-hero thing, and, and it set off a, a debate in the pages of Captain America about which one was better, which one is really what America needs. And ultimately they always go back, of course, to the original Captain America, but, you know, they've sort of done that experiment several times, you know, with different uh, characters. So the anti-hero is always there as a sort of possibility, as a foil in which proper national behaviour can be seen to emerge again.
1: The superhero comic is often seen as a truly American product, says Jason Dittmer. And this has had somewhat of a contradictory effect in countries outside the US, where superhero films and comics are often ridiculed for their American nationalistic themes. Yet, they remain immensely popular. You know, the superhero is almost universally
0: understood as an American art form, if you will, to make it sound more impressive than it is, uh, an American literary form. And it's reviled for that, and at the same time, people like it everywhere. You know, it's, people in Britain go and see these superhero films by droves. There's a sort of hunger for it, even as it's identified as alien and somewhat derisively so. So I think that says a lot actually about the way in which kind of culture circulates around the world. It's not this process of Americanization, everyone becoming Americans because of the circulation of Hollywood films, for instance. You know, but that it means different things to different people, you know, they may see it to hate watch it, they may see it because it's thrilling and they just kind of ignore the American overtones. There's a lot of different ways in which audiences can engage with this stuff. and equally there's an active effort by hollywood to draw in foreign audiences by s- setting scenes in other countries for i mean it's often quite bald you know they'll, they'll have a you know one scene in china uh, you know because they want to crack the chinese market like in the Batman films, there's that kind of weird scene where he flies to China and back in about 10 minutes. Or they'll have characters that are from different countries and, and whatnot. So it's a way of trying to get audiences to buy in and have someone to identify with or some sense of pride in the film, even as it's you know uniformly understood as an American product. It's only recently that the majority of Hollywood profits came from outside of America. So they explicitly see the rest of the world as their target.
1: But it's not just a recent Hollywood trend to try to crack the overseas market. In the 1970s, superhero comics appeared in other countries. And they tried to leverage the nationalistic themes that underpin characters like Captain America. And they tended to use similar character profiles for their superheroes. In Canada there was Captain Canuck, and in the UK Captain Britain.
0: Captain Britain's a great example, an explicit attempt by Marvel Comics to broaden its market share into Britain, which had its own, and still does have its own, sort of strong, independent comics publishing history, You know, Beano and Dandy and Judge Dredd, that kind of stuff. Not a huge superhero tradition, actually. So Marvel tried to move into the area by creating this hero, and it's never quite connected with the British people. In fact, when I talk to my students about it, they all sort of look puzzled at me that there even is one. The nationalist superheroes, Captain America, Captain Britain, Captain Canuck, these are all white male heroes that are meant to literally embody the nation. So there's politics to the representation of who gets to wear, for instance, the Stars and Stripes, or the Maple Leaf, or the Union Jack. You know who's going to be there? Superman, Wonder Woman, people like that. Periodically, they try to enroll women in various ways. So like, even in World War II, when we don't think of superheroes as being particularly gender conscious, there was Miss America. She had her own comic book at times. She was in, in the same superhero team as Captain America. She was in the All Winners Squad. And you know she had a little red, white, and blue mini skirt. And um, she was quite powerful, actually. But intriguingly, when the All Winners Squad got together to have their meetings, she was the one who took the
1: minutes. <laughs> she was the only woman on the team, and she took the minutes. But superheroes represent more than just nationalistic fantasies or the geopolitical and social attitudes of the time. Jason Dittmer says there's an inherent politicalness to the superheroes. And this has been co-opted and appropriated by people to advance various social movements. People are constantly
0: appropriating superheroes, reusing them, dressing up as them, using them to advertise various kinds of campaigns and issues and productively engaging with superhero culture, to do all kinds of things that have nothing to do with fascism, that have nothing to do with the national security state, but that take the the inherent politicalness of superheroes and redeploys it for new purposes. The men's rights movement, which you might argue is fascism or patriarchy in another way, but they've done all kinds of things like dress up like superheroes and chain themselves to parliament. Like up high, So there's all kinds of ways in which superheroes get reappropriated. Like, the cover of my book has President Obama, a graffiti artist who did Obama as Superman. It's like this incredible shorthand for what we might hope of, of Obama. In 2008, the idea of Obama as a messiah figure, come down to protect us and save us from ourselves, was a potent one. So that I think there's an interesting
1: politics to that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes and through TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a message or a review through iTunes. Catch you next time.